Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I've just returned from overseas. I was at a conference in Bahrain. It was a NISA conference, the Educators Training Institute. Uh, that was two days, and I've just flown back to Southern California. So I'm in Southern California today working with Marco Forster Middle School in San Juan Capistrano. This will be the third time working with them this year. I'll be in Fresno later this week. And then the next couple of weeks, I'll be heading out back to Oahu. You know, it's a tough life. Uh, but back with Keleopu'u Elementary School uh, for the first week of February, first full week of February. And then to Hollister, California and Green Bay, Wisconsin. Busy few weeks uh, up, coming up, uh, certainly, but uh, I love the work and looking forward to meeting with all those educators. Now, some upcoming events this spring. I uh, just want to share with you that I shared last time, uh, the Summit on PLC at Work. That's the big conference in Phoenix, Arizona. That'll be February 28th through March 2nd. I will be presenting on March the 1st, if that's of interest to you. Uh, the Grading from the Inside Out virtual training, that two-day training will be April 4th and April 11th. Um, Standards-based learning in action two-day training. That'll be in Idaho Falls, Idaho, face-to-face, April 13th and 14th. The assessment and grading conference, that'll be in Atlanta, Georgia, April 24th to 26th. I'll be presenting on the 24th and 25th because I need to head to Salt Lake City for the grading from the inside out two-day training, April 26th, 27th. And we have, of course, the big uh, conference that we're hosting, the Assessment Center Institute. Uh, That'll be in Las Vegas, Nevada, May 24th and 26th. So, Tons of events coming up this uh, spring. Links in the show notes for all of those events should they be of interest to you. And also you'll find them on the Solution Tree website. I also want to take a moment to announce that I have a new book set for release in April of this year. It's called Redefining Student Accountability, a proactive approach to teaching behavior outside the gradebook. It's all about how we teach responsibility and other student attributes without distorting achievement levels or achievement grades. You can pre-order that book right now. It ships April 21st. I'll also have a link in the show notes for that. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. Big welcome, of course, to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. Uh, This week, my guest is Tim Stevenson. Tim is a friend. He's a science teacher and the host of the Science 360 podcast. So, of course, we talk all things science. And in Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about next-generation assessments and the characteristics of those next-generation assessments and how we modernize our assessment systems. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Tim Stevenson is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by asking you all to consider the other side of the coin when it comes to change, and that is the cost of not changing. I don't think it's any secret that people don't like change. We tend to stick to the status quo even when the change is internally initiated. Now, when the change comes from the outside, colleagues, administration, district, state, province, etc., the resistance to change is almost expected. I can probably count on one hand the number of times we received a mandate from the district or our provincial ministry of education, and the collective response was, you know what, that's a really great idea. That almost never happens. We seem pre-programmed to critique anything from the outside. It's, It's a reflex. But even when the change is internal, our commitments often waver to a point where we tend to resist action. This is the time of year, of course, here at the end of January, where many of us have made New Year's resolutions to do something different, right? A lot of times it has to do with getting in shape or eating right or anything like that. But already at this time of year, by the end of January, we're starting to renegotiate with ourselves, aren't we? Now, let's face it. Maintaining the status quo is the path of least resistance. Just do what you've always done. Nothing changes. You just keep cruising along. However, I do think an oft-overlooked question that we should all consider when it comes to change is, you know, whether that change be personal or professional, is what is the cost of not changing? The status quo actually doesn't get a free pass because with so many things, there is a definite cost to not changing. Now, of course, if the change is frivolous, then it doesn't really matter. But that's not what I'm talking about here, right? You want to change up your morning routine or you want to drive a different way to work, go for it. If you don't change that, no big deal. But if the change is significant, then there will always be a price for not changing. If you have made a resolution to get more fit or to eat right or anything like that, there will be a cost for not changing. You had a goal in mind, so to not change would mean not reaching that goal. 
And in the case with fitness or food, there may be some potential health concerns that could arise. Again, maybe nothing egregious. I'm not trying to be dramatic here. It could be, but but still, you set a goal for the reason that you wanted to change the way you eat or, or your fitness or anything like that. So there must have been a concern on your part. Now let's think about your classroom. As the research evolves in education, in terms of what the most favorable courses of action are, what the most favorable practices are, to not keep up with that is to potentially maintain a classroom that is less and less relevant and worse, less and less effective. I think about grading. What is the cost of not changing to a context where grades are a true reflection of learning based solely on the quality of evidence that students produce? Now, it might feel easier to stick with the status quo, but ultimately, there is a cost to not changing. Not changing actually produces a change whether you like it or not. What's that change? Well, your classroom continues to move further and further away from what a more modern current classroom can and should look like. We've been teaching to standards or outcomes for at least 20 to 25 years, depending on where you work. So to cling to a point accumulation percentage-based system from days gone by will continually detach your practices from the reality of a modern classroom. To not change from traditional grading would have you continue to distort achievement levels for behavioral missteps. Grades would be lowered not because the student knows less, but because they weren't compliant. So again, you'd see the change would be the gap or the distance between the modern classroom and what your classroom looks like. So make no mistake, there is a price to pay for not changing. And it's naive to think otherwise. What is the price, for example, for not investing in your understanding of universal design for learning? Well, quite quite likely, you'll have inadvertently created some barriers for how students access the curriculum. What is the price to pay for not deepening your understanding of what it means to be trauma-informed? Well, again, inadvertently, you are likely to escalate situations and maybe even cause more harm in terms of how students who've experienced trauma perceive your classroom. they, They may not see it as a safe place. It's not that you did that intentionally, but it happened nonetheless. I mean, you may tell students to you know, get over it or say things like, how long are you going to hang on to that grievance? Because you may think of trauma as a memory rather than a reaction. You may not realize that for those who've experienced trauma, that that trauma is now. And those are just a few examples. The point here is that we are foolish to think clinging to the status quo means nothing changes. What changes is that you will either be moving toward or further away from what is most aligned with what our students need to navigate the complexities of the modern world, especially post-pandemic. There is a price to pay for not changing. And we would be wise to consider that part of change as well. The cost of changing, of course, can be dramatic depending upon your starting point. However, the cost of not changing can be equally dramatic and equally impactful. So the next time you're faced with a significant change, a brand new idea, or even the possibility of a slight adjustment, just ask yourself the other relevant question. What is the cost of not changing? And you may find out that the time and effort it takes to make the proposed changes in the district, the school, or in your classroom may in fact be well worth it. Joining me this week for the interview is uh, Tim Stevenson. Tim is a high school teacher in his 30th year of teaching science and astronomy in Langley, British Columbia. The majority of those years have been spent teaching at Walnut Grove Secondary School. Tim describes himself as a possibility thinker, an opportunity maker. He's always on the lookout for ways to make the content of his courses more relevant and more meaningful to his students, and then hoping that positive thinking approach will affect the enjoyment and longevity of teachers everywhere. To that end, he started his podcast called Science 360, And he wrote the book Beyond the Classroom in 2021. In 2018, uh, Tim was the recipient of the Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence, and he has been a TEDx presenter as well. So, Tim, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tom. Pleased to be here. Now, it's great to have you here. Um, You know, you and I have known of each other for uh, a number of years, but full disclosure, we just met one another face-to-face in December, and it was really great to yeah. connect at a, at a breakfast with a number of local, um, you know, content creators and podcasters, et cetera. Uh, and certainly science is a topic that I've been hoping to explore science teaching on, on, on the podcast. And so the timing was perfect. Uh, we've got you here. Really yeah. looking forward to the conversation today. So, uh, but before we 
get into that. Um, you've spent, you know, 30 years as a science teacher, um, and I gave some of the highlights of the resume, but maybe just start with the rundown of your career, highlight for us the professional journey, and, and maybe if you haven't changed jobs or changed schools, how has your thinking evolved, or just what, what has been the evolution that has taken you from the beginning of your career and brought you all the way to where you are today? It's a long story, <laughs> but, uh, you know, honestly, uh, I go right back to university days. Uh, I think one of the worst questions we can ask kids is, um, what are you going to do when you grow up or what are you gonna do with your degree or, cause how do you know? You just don't know. Um, so I, I tend not to ask that question, but I was asked personally, people would ask me, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go to university. I'll get a degree in science. I really like science. And the only reason I got a degree in science is because I like science in high school. So I thought, well, I should at least study what I enjoy learning about. And, um, halfway through my degree program, uh, we were we were studying uh, w- late one night in one of the rooms in the university, and um, one of my classmates was explaining a particular problem that we we're trying to solve. And I was confused by the way he was doing it. And I said, um, "Here, give me the give me the chalk, and I'll uh, let me try if I can explain that." And so I got up on the board and I started writing it out and teaching my classmates as we studied for this final exam. And afterwards, uh, one of one of the other fellows there came up and said, "Hey, you know what, uh, Tim?" you ought to be a teacher. You're really quite good at that. <laughs> I said, well, it's interesting because I've, I've never thought of that before. And so, uh, I, so I think it started to sort of dawn on me at that point that, um, and I got out of, te- out of university, ended up being a driving instructor of all things. So I taught <laughs> in the right seat of a car for over 160,000 kilometers over four years, but uh, stumbled into uh, Simon Fraser and got my teaching degree and then right into Langley school district as a teacher in 93. And, um, uh, you know, I just haven't really looked back. Uh, at the time, uh, Langley was just building a new school. You know, like the new school is now 30 years old, but um, right. uh, Walnut Grove Secondary, and I really wanted to get into this school. I'd heard a lot of good things about it. And within, uh, by, by 95, I, I was here and I got hired and, and, uh, and I've been here ever since, which may or may not be the best teaching strategy to stay in one school for this long. Uh, a lot of people will say, maybe, maybe you ought to move around and, uh, but but I've, I've enjoyed being here. I, I've never had really aspirations to move on to administration. So I didn't feel a need to get around the district. Uh, I established my roots here. Uh, and then uh, getting the senior science courses really got my um, teaching feet wet. And, and then it wasn't long before I realized that I really had an interest in astronomy. And so uh, around 03, I said to my principal, um, what, what do you think about, uh, about this? Uh, in the 21st century, there's gonna be two very hot sciences. One of them is going to be genetics and the other one is going to be astronomy. And um, I'd like to teach one of those. And it was some time later that the principal, Mary Wright, came back and said, uh, well, how would you like to do the astronomy course? I mean, she just as easily could have said genetics, but uh, it turned out she said astronomy. And so mm-hmm. I, I just started teaching it. And, and it's been 20 years I developed this course. And now it serves the purpose of senior science credit for hundreds and hundreds of kids. And we learn about space mm-hmm. and, and they love it and they're very interested in it. And I really enjoy teaching it. Uh, so I've, I've, I've sort of carved out my niche, uh, here at the school, Astro Stevenson, uh, and, uh, that's sort of how I got here. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. You know, I, I, you know, moving around, changing jobs, all of that, I think there's something to be said for that, but there's also something to be said for staying where you love your work and, and being a part of, you know, you obviously are part of that community and, and the familiarity that. The, not just the students have with you, but the parents, the community members. I remember when Walnut Grove was being built and mm-hmm. uh, early in my career as well. And and I think that there's a lot to be said for that too. So everybody finds their own way forward. I don't think you have to follow any rules about, and I suppose, especially since you had no interest in administration, changing schools would have been kind of pointless in a way. Kind of pointless. Because uh, you, you, love, you love what you're doing because the students change every year. So that keeps you, keeps it fresh anyway. Yeah. I think, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, I just think, say, there's um, a new there's a new uh, group of kids in front of you every year. So there's, there's every a thought that uh, in teaching you just do the same thing every year, and you just don't. Every no, year there's don't. a new complexion in the classroom, and and there, that keeps it fresh. No kidding. Yeah, for sure. And that 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 keeps things uh, and new challenges and and obviously new curricular changes in BC and mm-hmm. all that we've been through. I, I think what's become clear in recent years is that science instruction has, has at least in theory. This may not happen in every single classroom, but the idea being that there's been a significant shift in science instruction uh, going, you know, toward this idea of students constructing meaning, um, 
constructing new scientific knowledge through inquiry-based learning or some sort of process of project-based learning, et cetera, rather than having them just sort of memorize a bunch of facts and, and uh, scientific you know, labels and all of that. But I want to ask you from your perspective, Tim, what, what does that actually mean when we say constructing new knowledge? Uh, what does that mean to you? Because you know there are scientific facts and laws, and it's not like we get to decide what they mean, but, but there are places where we get to construct knowledge. So what does that mean to you, Tim? There's no question that going back over the years, there were a lot of years where we would uh, take all the desks down to the gym for the 300 kids to write the grade 11 chemistry final, and they'd all write the same test. And um, we thought we were doing the right thing. And maybe at the time we were, the students were uh, rising to the challenge and we'd have study sessions after school and and, um, all in the name of learning particular formulas and how to solve certain types of problems. And uh, in, in a way that's very valuable, uh, there's no question about it. Uh, it's not too dissimilar to, you know, if a person were to go to the gym on a regular basis, when are you ever going to have to take 100 pounds and lift it over your chest 10 times? I mean, never, right? But you do it because you get stronger. I think with uh, science and formulas and equations, it's sort of the same. You're exercising your brain and problem solving. These are all good things. But I think what happens is um, the, the shift, uh, started maybe I think 10, 11 years ago where we started to move away from just these tests that um, would require students to memorize strategies and techniques to solve problems. And we started looking at um, what, what, is this, um, what does this mean to you? What, what is, uh, where's the application in this? And uh, what I saw, I actually, I guess for me, I, I jumped in f- with both feet and um, I started to make my entire thrust towards if, um, you know, if I'm going to teach this to you, I want to make sure you understand why you should know this. It's not, mm-hmm. not because, uh, well, because we always have, but there's, there's got to be a reason for it. And, uh, and out of that comes the construction of knowledge, I think. Uh, it's almost like organic in a way. Uh, you don't always know exactly what the construction is going to be, but um, it seems that there's always something. And to be honest, the number of uh, constructivist or st- constructions, I what's the right word, but the number yeah. of things that you, these kids put together, they're somewhat limited. There's definitely a theme. Um, in science, the theme, without a doubt, revolves around um, energy, uh, production, uh, transportation needs, um, fuels, uh, climate. These things... Um, you can't avoid them these days. Uh, perhaps one of the greatest scientific challenges that are in front of us is solving the climate crisis. And so these things are framed. And it could be, I could stand here guilty as charged that I might steer them in that direction, but it's because I'm compelled to make the planet a better place. I think the best way to do that is through education. But through that, uh, students will do things. Like, for example, I had a boy leave class at uh, the winter break, returned from China with a bottle of water from the ocean right near where he lives. He wanted to bring it into the lab and analyze its pH and its salinity levels. And these are the sort of things that I've been teaching them about. But I didn't ask him to bring me a bottle of water from China. I actually asked him, how did he get it on the airplane? Because it's over 100 mils. (laughs) Yeah, but there it is, and and uh, I, I just think students start to organically um, construct meaning, uh, but I I deliberately frame it in such a way that uh, that directs them towards this meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that yeah yeah I love that. Uh, good question. How did they, how did he get the bottle of water on on the plane? That's a very good question. Um, but I like the idea of framing it that way. You, we've seen this shift, and I think you're right about you know, 10, 12 years ago when the ministry here in BC was talking about shifting to competencies. We've seen it in the United States with the, uh, the introduction of the next generation science standards and the emphasis on science and engineering practices like asking questions and planning investigations and using models and making argument and all of those things I think really make science uh, interesting. And it kind of leads me to my next question, which is, you know, science is so interesting and, and really does kind of explain the world. And yet so many kids, and, and maybe this is not true in your classroom, but, but maybe we look at more of the royal we or, sure. or, or teachings in general. So many kids run from science because it can feel so abstract and so unattainable. So I think you've kind of started talking about this already, but I want to talk about how do we get kids excited about science? It seems 
that you know you want to look to things like relevance and and meaning and it, the example of the bottle of water brings relevance to what you were teaching but again if 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 we say that science being defined within those parameters of relevance and meaning how do we get today's students to buy into science uh, and get them excited about learning about science i i would start right away by saying that the best student in the classroom has to be the teacher and so I'm always on the lookout for um, the, the scientific topics that are being discussed on online, on YouTube channels. Um, what are people talking about? Uh, you see, what if you go back to textbook, you know, the, the wonderful world of textbook chemistry, for example, yeah. I could teach you, you're an intelligent person, I'm sure I could teach you how to do this. I could teach you how an electrochemical cell could produce half a volt using the uranium ion and the permanganate ion. You could do it. And then, and then you say, okay, well, I, I just did that. But why did I just do that? Because yeah. when it talks about batteries, and, and by the way, that, that's an exact question taken out of the textbook. Um, and I taught it to my students. I did. And because I don't want people to think I'm throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater, if that's an expression we can use. Like, right. Um, I'll teach it to them, but then I'll say, but when you think about electrification, you're not talking many times about the uranium ion. You're talking about the lithium ion. Mm -hmm. Now, then really we, we should be focusing on the lithium ion battery. And how does that one work? So I'm going to exp explain to you the, the way a battery works, the anode, the cathode, the flow of electrons and the the electronegativity of the ions involved and why the electrons flow and the voltage. We can calculate the voltage, but the one I'm going to get you to focus on is the lithium ion battery, because that's the one that everybody's using. I've got one in my computer right in front of me. I'm wearing one on my wrist. I have it in my phone. Everywhere you go, you hear lithium ion batteries. And then what's interesting about that is directly below lithium on the periodic table is sodium. Well, can we then make a sodium ion battery? It seems to me that when we study the ocean, when we were studying in the previous unit about uh, water solubility, there's a lot of sodium in the ocean. Perhaps that could be a source that doesn't require mining. Maybe we could draw some sodium from the water, make sodium ion batteries. But then you think, well, wait a minute, sodium is an atom that's three times heavier than lithium. Um, well, then that means that my batteries are going to be heavier. Now, my cell phone is heavier. My, my car is heavier. So, it's, But maybe it's, it's useful for stationary storage. And so that's a discussion we can start to have. So I, I deliberately try to direct these, these conversations towards, um, or, or maybe from originally, I'll teach you the theory. I will, because it's my responsibility. You need to understand this. But here's an example. You're using uranium and permanganate. But the essence of electrification and electrochemistry is the lithium ion battery. So we're going to focus most of our time on that. And that's relevant and it's meaningful. And you know what happens then? Someone in the class says this question. They go, I heard that they're, um, that um, the mining of lithium is really bad for the environment. Oh, okay. Interesting. You've heard that, eh? Well, let's, let's talk about it. What are the top five countries in the world that produces lithium? Why don't you look that up? And then mm -hmm. another kid will say, well, you know what I've heard? I've heard that the mining conditions are really poor. They use child labor and very poor wages. Oh, that's interesting. I've heard that too. Well, um, why don't we look into that? So now all of a sudden, social aspects of science are being brought into a chemistry class. And everyone's kind of like leaning in going, yeah, is that true? Like, and then someone will bring up this. They'll say, hey, I got this picture right here. I saw this picture going around on Instagram and it shows um, it shows a finished pipeline and there's a beautiful parkland. There's grass and there's trees and there's a deer walking across and butterflies. And then there's a picture right beside it of a lithium IMI. It looks terrible. So wait a minute, maybe we ought to just stick with the oil because, and I, okay, well, let's look into that picture. Now we're doing mm -hmm. some uh, analysis, some sort of critical thinking around um, media. And is this, is this actually a picture? Is this a real thing? Is that actually a lithium IMI? Well, let's, let's do some research. Um, so anyway, my point being, you start with, honestly, I start with what's always what, what any traditional chemistry class will do, but I quickly migrate to these things that gets the kids leaning into the conversation instead mm -hmm. of leaning out and looking at their watch. Right. And that's how I approach it. Yeah. I think that, that D and the, the irony there is as you quickly pivot, you're actually deepening their understanding of the theory and the ideas because you're bringing relevance to it you're making connections to the world 
I think that's the best of what science has to offer. Now, you mentioned lithium batteries many times. So, Tim, I need an answer. Sure. Why can I not put my lithium battery in my checked luggage? Why is that a problem? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Um, yeah, they always ask you, you got any lithium batteries in that checked bag? I'm like, nope, I don't. But why don't? Why am I not allowed to? The closest the- I can figure is that they there's some thought that there's some sort of spontaneous combustion I suppose if it's in the cabin, you can address it quickly and, I don't know, open the door and throw it out. Or, uh, yeah. But I've had the exact same thing happen. You know, it's funny with lithium-ion batteries, when they talk about how they can catch on fire, um, my son, who's an engineer, he said, um, g- regular cars run on gasoline. I, I think gasoline catches on fire, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's the reason. I think it, it's, yeah, and it ha- it's just to do with combustibility. Yeah. I don't want to keep going down the rabbit hole, but you, no. you said, um, open the door. Like we're 30,000 feet in the air. Open the door, Tim. But if you do it, no, yeah, I'm no science teacher, but I don't think the physics of that work. <laughs> yeah. Maybe don't open the door. There you go. Okay. Okay. We're, we're good. We'll leave, we'll leave that one alone. Okay. Um, what is it, you know, when we think, of, I mean, science is so deep and so vast and, and, there, and there's so many aspects of it. I, I guess there's, there does come a point where, you kind of think about like, what is essential? So I guess a simple question would be, what is it that we really want to be sure that students know scientifically? Like what is at the core of science instruction? I think the most important thing is curiosity and um, and knowing where to get your questions answered. I, I guess first though, you, you have to have questions. And uh, of course you hear it all the time. And I use this expression all the time that the more, the most important thing in school is is not the answers, but the questions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really true about science. Um, science, of course, encompasses everything from physics to chemistry, astronomy, geology, biology, and uh, it just goes on and on. And um, everybody will have a slant towards one of those. Uh, maybe I'm interested in, in space and maybe I'm interested in cell biology, um, but I, I, I think it's important that students find um, an ability or curiosity that they can take with them and, and not be afraid to see the thing is in a science classroom, it's one of those classes or one of those courses perhaps where uh, assessment could be based upon the right answer. And it, it's, it's sort of um, it, it, it maybe is that that's what causes kids to shy away is they're afraid they don't know the right answer. And it could well be the teachers are asking for the right answer. I've seen in my school many examples where teachers are now asking students uh, to, to research something of interest, an inquiry-based final assessment. And they're, they're finding out about it because they want to, not because they have to. And uh, this is going to move them forward in life with the idea that a, I can be curious. B, I kind of know where to find answers. And C, I kind of enjoyed learning that. And I want to keep learning new things. If we can send kids away with that sort of mindset, I think we've done a, a good job. Um, so that's, that's how I would, I would push the, uh, the education piece when it comes to science education. And, it, and maybe there's another piece to your question as well that I didn't touch on. I don't know. Is there? No, no, that was, that was good. I mean, that's the thing. We just, at the core, the curiosity, I mean, that's going to fuel everything. If kids are curious about, about the world, curious about phenomenon, like how does this all sort of happen? And, and that, that spurs that further learning, that further inquisition, the idea that they want to find out. I think that among anything is, is what scientists are. That's what experimentation is, right? It's curiosity. And that curiosity can lead them. I, you know, it strikes me that, we can get to a lot of that. Do you do you see an evolution in in the teaching of science that coincides with the uh, sort of the evolution of the internet and the and the access to information that now as a science teacher you don't have to be the keeper of knowledge that knowledge can be accessed. You obviously have to vet websites and and know that they're credible sources. But but in the end, the access to information allows you as a teacher. Would you agree with that? That it's allowed you to go to those deeper places because the acquisition of knowledge is a little more efficient. Would that be fair? Yeah, like, and not just for the student, but for me as well. So, the teacher, um, yeah, I I learn. Um, like, I think it's fair to say I learn a lot of stuff from two main sources, and that is Twitter and YouTube. 
Mm. Um, I, I'm not the first person to say that if you watch the, you know, five videos from good, good sources on any topic on YouTube, you'll be smarter than 99% of the people on the street about that topic. I'm mm. not saying that you're going to become an astronaut that way. But I'm going to say that you're going to become conversational. You're going to become knowledgeable. You'll have something, you'll have an opinion formed. Um, there's so much, it, it's so easy to be smart these days. And I think we have to be careful. What do we define as smart? You see, smart at one time was the kid who got all the answers correct on the test. And I think today smart is somebody who's constantly reading things, constantly watching these videos. There's so many spectacular content creators that are putting out good, good information. And, and um, it's that, that to, to constantly be after these things and watching these things and reading these things, see what is, what it does for me now, because I'll read these things and I'll watch these things. And I've got my, I tell my students all the time, I've got my five favorite astronomers and I watch their stuff. I read their stuff. Because if I don't do those things, what business do I have teaching astronomy? I, right. I haven't actually taken an astronomy course. Um, mm-hmm. I, I haven't taken a chemistry course since 1987, but I teach chemistry. Well, that means I'm responsible for continually upgrading my knowledge. And so how do I do that? Well, it's so easy to do these days, not just for the students, but for me too. So what that allows me to do is I come into the classroom now. Let's say we're talking about um, energy production, grade nine science class, and, and energy production is a big part of that. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to hit probably, I, I think I've, I've hit 16 or 17 different angles to energy production in, in Canada. And then I have this whole list of what we'll probably end up doing is we'll probably have a two or three class discussion as we build this list and I'll share them with them, things that I've learned and I'll show them some of the things that I've learned. I'll type these lists on the screen. And after that two or three classes now, I will sit back and say, something up there catches your attention. What do you want to know more about? And mm-hmm. now go away and well, don't really go away, but uh, <laughs> now, now carry on and, and, chase after that one element of that bigger bigger piece and you know the best opportunities have been when we then gather together and we share what we found out and those have been the best grade nine science classes that i've ever been a part of is is going around the room and these kids they they're 14 years old and they sound like they're seasoned scientists and i'm just like oh my gosh what am i supposed to do how can i assess you how can i assess you low because what you just did was you you chased after a thought, you, you're curious, you researched, mm-hmm. you synthesized your thoughts, you wrote them down and you presented them in public. How do yeah. I say you don't get an A? Right, right. <laughs> that's that's science, right? That's, uh, you know, you, you mentioned YouTube and, and uh, I have firsthand experience with that in terms of my son who is finishing his applied physics degree at SFU. And um, the amount of times he's used YouTube to clarify concepts, to go deeper on some things, or just to explore his own curiosity. I remember at one point he had this obsession with black holes in when he was in high school and he just, you know, constantly watching videos and was yeah. just fascinated by that in, on his own time, his free time. Yeah. And, and that is the best of what science is, is it sparks a curiosity. And he just went deep. YouTube made it easy for him to get through. He had support in his calculus classes. It was just something that was accessible to him that we just didn't have generations no. ago. And and I think the best of, I mean, there's a dark side and an ugly side to social media and all those things, but the upside is such a benefit to students that you can, you can satisfy that curiosity at such a rapid pace. It's true. And I think that's, that's wonderful in terms of a medium. Now I want to, I want to start talking about assessment because, you know, assessment of course is near and dear to my heart. And I have heard you say that, uh, before that personalized learning leads to assessing what students have an emotional attachment to and the results are far better when they are assessed on anything like that as opposed to what we would call standardized so i want to break this down in two parts i found it you know i find i found it very curious and and interesting that you use the concept of emotional attachment so let's just start there uh, what do you mean specifically when you say that students will have an emotional attachment and uh, how do we develop that in a science class? What, what does that mean? And then we'll get to the assessment part. <laughs> I, I try my hardest to get kids to a, an emotional level. Uh, and uh, uh, so you do have to dig a, around a topic a, a little bit for sure. Uh, 
you know, biologically speaking, uh, people, uh, you know, the, the word cancer strikes fear. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to be in a place within 10 years where CRISPR technology will allow uh, personalized cancer treatments. They'll be able to figure out exactly what the gene is is causing this problem and make a remedy for it. This is this is rem a remarkable time to be alive because of the mm -hmm. technology that's coming up, and so you look for those sort of things and um, and and then attach students' emotions to it and get them excited. So the emotion isn't necessarily, you know, I'm not really talking about love, or, but, but it's no. excitement. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Like what, what, tell me more about this. Uh, you, and, and, um, or, or what would be an, another, an, well, obviously anything to do with energy production we've talked about already. Um, but, um, you know, the ocean, for example, uh, the ocean mm -hmm. is just one large chemical experiment that's going on. And it's, uh, we teach acids and bases in, you know, in, in high school. But the greatest issue around acidification is in the oceans. Can I show you an image of the Great Barrier Reef before and after a, a bleaching event um, and explain to you what's gone on there? Do you, want, you know, do you want to be a part of that solution? Do you want to get involved mm -hmm. in fixing this? And students are like, yes, I do. Like, that's bad. Is that bad? What happens if the Great Barrier Reef <laughs> is gone. I remember yeah. one year, look, I, I remember one year, uh, this influenced my teaching. And, and I think it's very important that teachers pick up on these little tiny things that happen and let them affect your teaching. But I had a grade nine girl seven or eight years ago. She sat over here and she said, you know, you've been teaching us about these coral reefs and things. I never see them. They're below the water. Why should I care? And of course, what happened was all the students, oh, <laughs> what's the teacher going to say? Yeah. And I said, no, 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 wait, wait. That's actually a pretty good question. Because mm -hmm. if I can't answer that question, you're right. Why would I bother? Why, why am I teaching this to you? Why should you care? And so I, I, I allow that to affect me. And I, mm -hmm. I make it a point of then trying to draw the students in to understand why they should care. And I tell them right off the bat that if I can't do that, I will spend a little less time on it um, because there's got to be a connection. I think kids today are just too savvy. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, so th they're, they're not an easy customer. They're, they're wise and they're discerning yeah. buyers of your product and your product had better be good because yeah. they'll return it. <laughs> return to sender, <laughs> not interested. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Emotional attachment, emotionally invested in solutions, in ex exploration. All of that seems to be um, once that's the hook, right? Does it hook? It Does it hold? How do we get them involved? Okay. So let's, let's finish up now and talk about the assessment piece. And let's talk about this idea of personalized learning. You know, how do you strike the balance? We have in BC, of course, we have curricular competencies, so many states, provinces, states have mandated curricular outcomes or standards. And yet we talk about personalized learning or personalized assessment. So how do you find that balance? What's the pathway for making sure that our pathway is personalized, even though we are adhering to, say, a provincial curriculum? Oh, boy. Um, you know, for fear of getting myself in trouble, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I am experimenting with these things all the time. And, uh, uh, for example, uh, this, this semester is coming to a close soon in my grade 12 chemistry class. We've been studying electrochemistry. There have been a number of students who have been quite interested to understand more about, uh, the electrification, the lithium ion battery, the mining thing, all that stuff we were talking about before. And I, I, I picked up on that and, and I said, you know, I'm going to strike you a deal here for this unit. I'm going to forego for you the, um, uh, the unit test where I would ask you to balance an electrochemical reaction or assess an electrolytic cell, that kind of thing. And I'm going to allow you to do that research that you seem to be quite interested in. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and what ends up happening is I've had students say, can I do both? Well, yes, you can. Mm-hmm. Another one said, I would just prefer to do the test because I'm quite good at tests. I quite enjoy I have one student this, this semester who says, I find it quite satisfying to do all those calculations. <laughs> all right. I'm going to give you a test with a bunch of calculations. You're going to love it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just feel that um, I, it was a moment that I picked up on, and I'm reading the audience a little bit, and uh, they're having the opportunity to uh, pursue a path that they find a particular interest. Now, it's all on the same topic, right. but it's just different ways of expressing it. Mm-hmm. I'll also say this. Um, I've had many conversations with students, in particularly grade 12, about what are your plans? Like next September, where do you think you're going to be? If somebody says, I'm going to be a lawyer, or I'm going to take a degree in history, or I'm going to be traveling, are you going to take more chemistry courses? I don't see myself ever taking chemistry again. Okay, then in that instance, I'm inclined to say, then you need to really pursue something in chemistry that you find a real attachment to and you really want to know something about. Now, on the other hand, if somebody says, I'm probably going to get a degree in science or I'm going to go into pre-med, I'm going to say, well, you know, in your situation, you're you're going to be you're going to be meeting up with tests uh chemistry tests biology biochemistry microbiology all these things it's mm-hmm. a tough road ahead of you you can handle it you're going to be able to do it for you i think what you should do is stick with the more technical things i think you should do the test and that's kind of the way i i do it uh yeah, yeah. i think that's um for me, from an assessment perspective, I think too often we are trying to swing the pendulum, as the expression goes. I think there can be times we're trying to personalize and be progressive with our assessment practices that we are dismissive of tests and we say, let's do it in an alternative way. For me, I would rather teachers expand their repertoire to include tests and other options because, as you say, there are students for whom tests might be a very important type of assessment. So I think we can be easily dismissive of tests because tests have a history, tests have a, they're kind of, some people perceive them as old school, but but they are a valid assessment method. And I think if we can learn to expand our methods, expand our repertoire to include tests and other inquiry-based learning opportunities and other investigations, et cetera, I think we can tailor things for students as well in that in that realm. The other thing you made me think of is how important it is to focus on practices and, and, and processes that scientists utilize. I, I, I'm thinking more of the next generation science standards in the U.S., but I'm also thinking about our curricular competencies in the sense that the competencies can be applied to content and the content can be shaped and personalized through curiosity. Uh, the, the, the science and engineering practices, as I mentioned earlier, planning investigations, asking questions, analyzing and interpreting data, those are all things that you could, through your own curiosity and own investigation, still be assessed on, even though the content of what you're learning about is changing. So I think there are a lot of opportunities for personalized assessment. Personalized assessment doesn't mean we get to make up our own outcomes, our own curriculum, yeah. but it does mean that doing exactly as you described it, I'm thinking that's exactly what I think of, which is tapping into what, what does your future look like? What are you curious about? What are you interested in? Let's nurture that within the realm of this unit, still the same topic, but let's personalize it. Does that, does that resonate with you in terms of how you might approach assessment? I think definitely uh, the way I would uh, approach it with my students is, um, you know, you think of the, let's say there's a, a battery engineer at Tesla and they would be working on a particular formulation to get the most energy from the least weight and cost and that sort of thing. And I'll, I'll have, for example, on the screen that uranium and uh, permanganate ion electrochemical cell is an example. And what I'll say to the students is, you see, that engineer at Tesla, he could solve this problem. I'm, I'm sure he could. Why would he not be able to? But is that his daily job? Absolutely not. What he does on a day-to-day basis is a specialized task related to a lithium-ion battery. Um, so all of these steps that you're, you know, everybody, everything that you've ever seen technologically in the world, somebody first sat in a grade 12 science classroom learning these sort of mundane things, but all I'm saying is these days with a discerning student and with so much access to knowledge globally through the internet and all these different sources, we just need to bring in all these other pieces because they're seeing a myriad of options in every avenue of their lives. Then it's got to be the same way in schools as well. Right. 
And I appreciate that you uh, said that about tests because I've, uh, without a doubt over the years, I've had students who love, especially in these sort of more academic science courses, they love to right. show what they can right. do. It's like the right. guy who says, um, here, put more weight on the bar. I'll show you how much I can lift. Mm -hmm. Give me another one of those chemical reactions. I'll show you I can figure <laughs> yeah. that out. One, you know, right. like, good. Right. Go for it, man. That's Love right. It. And I think I, yeah, I think it's just the idea for me is always about uh, it's good for students to have variety. It's good for them to take an opportunity to show what they know in a variety of formats. I don't think we need to trade one for the other. We don't need to make this a zero-sum game where we just dismiss a valid assessment method. It's a, I would say the same thing on the micro level when people are dismissive of multiple choice. Multiple choice is a valid assessment method, but it has a shelf life. There are only There's only so, unless you're a, a professional item writer, we can only write questions that get to a certain depth. And at some point you're going to have to move to constructed response or performance tasks that lead to a deeper level of understanding. But it's not as if multiple choice is an invalid assessment method. It's, it's a valid assessment method that has limitations like every other method. So I think for me, the, the approach is to be as expansive as possible. And to that's how we personalize. That's how we become relevant and responsive to our students is giving them the array of opportunities to show what they know in, in that sense. So yeah. uh, fascinating conversation, Tim. Uh, I've got two questions left as we finish up uh, our conversation. These are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And the first one is one you can take in any direction you want. But the question is simply this, educationally speaking, it doesn't even have to be about science, anything you want. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night, metaphorically, because it doesn't really, Yeah. <laughs> but I think about these things all the time, all the yeah. time. Mm -hmm. Like, is, is if I went into any classroom, in any school, in any part of the world, would I see the teacher who's done the, mm, the legwork, um, is bringing to them, to their class, to their students, an excitement, uh, um, a, a joy of learning have they have they are they going through the motions or are they super excited to be there because that has to happen if that doesn't happen no matter what you do you're not going to get these kids um it what keeps me up at night is is knowing that there's um students who are subject to um situations where it's just going through the motions and there's so much to be excited about. And in any course, if I taught anything, that's what I would be doing is I'd be seeking out these opportunities to show these kids where this matters in the world. And um, the, the, re the reward is students buy in, students enjoy, they want to learn more if you bring it to them under that framework. Okay. So um, I, I see um, all over the place, examples where I think, oh, if you, if you just dove into that deeper, mm -hmm. there's opportunities mm -hmm. there to get your kids is so excited. You got to right. do that. Right. Right. So, I love that. I think, and I think that's good advice, honestly, for any subject, not just science is, is mm -hmm. the depth and the relevance and the meaning that we, we have the opportunity to do that so often. And I think that's in many ways what our curricular competencies here in BC are trying to do is I bring do. some of that to the table. Um, maybe maybe not in a perfect way, but certainly in a way that is better than the list of prescribed learning outcomes we had in the previous oh. curriculum for sure. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to finish up on a lighter note here, uh, Tim, and I know yeah. full disclosure, I live very close to Alder Grove, BC, but uh, as someone who loves food and fashions himself as a bit of an amateur foodie, not that I... I'm not a food snob. I can I can go on either end. I, I like a good uh, hole in the wall. I like a nice restaurant, whatever. But you live in Alder Grove, um, not very far from where I live. But uh, my question is this: Where's the best place to eat in Alder Grove? <laughs> yeah, well, there's actually two that are our go-to places in Alder Grove. Because right. honestly, if you you know if anyone who lives in the area, Alder Grove is not known for its culture. It's not a cultural hub. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, good food is good food. You know, you cannot deny Benki's Sushi. Okay. Benki's Sushi. Uh, their, their Las Vegas rolls with black rice and their dynamite rolls. I mean, they... Love it. A real treat is I'll, I'll be driving home on a Friday. I love Friday when I get that text. You know that text from your wife that says, hey, why don't you stop at Benki's and pick us up some sushi? <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. right. Have we got yeah. any wine? 
Um, yeah, and, and then, and then you can't also. I mean, there's a, a staple in Alder Grove that is is it should be known worldwide. And that's the Fox. Mm. The Fox, the pub. It's a it's a it's an it's an English style pub. They have incredible uh, French onion soup. Uh, all of their entrees, their 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 crispy chicken sandwich is phenomenal. Um, nice. And then every Thursday night is wing night, oh. uh, and they've got these big, bold leather wooden chairs and big <laughs> thick wooden tables. It's just a spectacular yeah. atmosphere, uh, very Fantastic. homey. Yeah, so the, the fox. Well, living uh, living as close as I do, maybe you know one day we can find our way to the fox and you can uh, walk me through the menu and, yeah. and we can enjoy uh, enjoy. I love French onion soup. Uh, anything else you've mentioned there, fantastic and uh, certainly. Uh, a good draft or two would also be in order for that. Yeah, time. absolutely. So, yeah. Listeners, uh, you can, and really should follow Tim on Instagram and Twitter. The handle is the same. It's at Astro Stevenson. Uh, the Facebook page is called beyond the sky and Tim, your podcast is called science 360. I want to give you a couple of minutes here. We haven't really talked about both your book and your podcast. So can you give us a very brief synopsis of the book beyond the classroom and also your podcast, obviously you focus on science, but what is sort of the general thread? So let's, I want to give you a couple of moments to promote both of those things. Well, the the book, Beyond the Classroom, uh, it was a project that, uh, without a word of a lie, started in the mid-90s. Uh, I was just starting as a teacher, and I, I got to thinking about what teaching is and what it could be, and maybe I thought perhaps what it should be. And I started to write mm-hmm. those thoughts and ideas down, and uh, I completed probably around 97, a quite a large manuscript and it's, it just is something that sat on my shelf. I didn't do anything with it, but I did all this writing. And so uh, I thought, you know, really what I should do at the other end of my career now is I should pull that off the shelf and revamp and revise and rethink and retool it a little bit. And so I, I sat down and rewrote it. And um, I, and what I came up with was a book whereby I, I, you know, really, I described my teaching career and the philosophy of education that got me to where I am. And um, I guess if I could describe where I am, anybody can get to the end of a 30-year career. But uh, after 30 years of teaching, uh, I can't wait for Monday morning. That's where I want people to be. I want people to be mm-hmm. excited to go to school 30 years into their career on a Monday morning. I don't dread the first day of school. I can't mm-hmm. wait for the first day of school. What, how how did I get to be like that? Why am I like that? Is it maybe just my personality? I don't know. But I think it's partly the way I've decided to to do teaching. And I wrote it down in my book. I, I, mm-hmm. I described it. And my 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 altruistic hope is that if if people read it, they'll go, hmm. So teaching can be like that? Yes, it can yeah. be. And so I, uh, people, what people have told me is who've read it, and people all over the world have read it. They have. I've got messages from people all over the place, and they've said, "You know what? Mm-hmm. It was like sitting and listening to you talk. It was like um, it was a shot in the arm. It was a breath of fresh air. It mm-hmm. was an easy read, and I just felt good about teaching." And I said, "Exactly. That's what I wanted." Fabulous. So that's the book. The book. Okay, and the podcast. The podcast, Science Three Hundred and Sixty. Um, um, what I wanted to provide was uh, guests who know a fair bit about something to do with science. I guess my mm-hmm. rationale is uh, teachers are busy people, our, but our education took place perhaps a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And so what's going on in the world of science today? And so I look for guests that talk about things in a very up-to-date fashion. Maybe they're working as a scientist in this field or that field. And I ask them, what's the latest and greatest? What should we be telling our students in high school today? So it becomes a resource that a teacher could listen and then go into their classroom and say, I just learned this interesting stuff. And, um, and, and I, that's what I hope it becomes is just a, a teaching resource. And it's an interesting conversation. And it may affect what you do in your classroom. Fantastic. Um, you know, I can't, uh, thank you enough, Tim, the, uh, your energy, your passion for teaching. Uh, it's, it's contagious. Mm-hmm. It gets me fired up. Uh, and, and certainly appreciate uh, all that you bring to your students uh, on a daily basis. And the fact that after 30 years, you're still excited about Monday morning, you're still excited about the first day of school, that that's a testament to who you are as a teacher. So uh, great to get to meet you uh, earlier, uh, you know, in December yeah. and uh, great to reconnect here. And I look forward to future connections, but uh, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. 
I love the opportunity to come on to things like these and just sort of promote teaching and make people say, you know what, stick around. This is a good career. Stick around. Don't quit on it too soon because you got a lot to offer. There's more good things to come. Love it. Absolutely true. Thanks, Tim. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to share with you some important characteristics of what we might call next generation assessments. Now, this is on my mind because this was the topic I presented on in Bahrain at the Educators uh, Training Institute this past weekend. So I thought I would share these thoughts with you. Um, And and I want to give a shout out to my colleagues, Cassandra Erkins and Nicole Dimich, uh, as these thoughts I'm about to share with you are our thoughts, not just mine. Uh, We wrote about them in our book, Growing Tomorrow's Citizens in Today's Classroom, when we talked about assessing critical competencies. So shout out to Cassie and Nicole. Now, the idea of next generation assessments is to align our assessment systems with the modern or next generation learning outcomes or standards. And next generation assessments will emphasize competencies rather than content knowledge. They'll emphasize performance tasks rather than random questions or trivia that will focus on alignment to the standards, making sure that they're cognitively rigorous, they're relevant, there's fairness and equity involved, um, we're clear on what we're assessing, and the assessments are reliable. So there's a number of different, different things we think about. But I wanna dig into some of the characteristics that I think are so important. So here's what Cassie, Nicole, and I would say about next generation assessments. And so we would sort of define them this way. Next generation assessments empower all learners to demonstrate their knowledge and skills in authentic ways that elicit multifaceted evidence of critical competencies necessary for success now and in the future. That's the way we would define it. And again, the future is important because when we talk about competencies, we talk about the ability or the uh, the development, I suppose, of students becoming adaptable to the ever-changing world. So we talk about now, but we also talk about the future. Now, in order to do that, in order to create next-generation assessments that empower all learners to demonstrate their knowledge in authentic ways along the lines of critical competencies necessary for that success, we would submit to you that next-generation assessments have the following seven characteristics. Okay, First, we would say those assessments are modern. They are relevant, they're student-centered, and they integrate content and skills meaningfully. Right? They prioritize reasoning, they show the evolution of student thinking, they are fluid and flexible both in format and in execution. Okay, So again, student-centered, integrating content and skills meaningfully, they prioritize reasoning, show evolu- the evolution of student thinking. So if you want to think about your next generation ass- assessments, just think about who's doing the thinking. Anytime the students are not doing the thinking, if they're just doing something procedural, if, if it's recall, they may be important assessments maybe from a formative perspective, but from, an, from a summative perspective and getting sort of substantive demonstrations of learning, they definitely need to be more modern in that sense. Number two, they need to be authentic, right? We want compelling local and global issues to drive both the process and the product, right? The products and the processes grounded in actual events We want them to be cross-disciplinary in nature. And the audience is ultimately those beyond the classroom. Like content knowledge is still necessary as students will need to, as we always say, you'll have to think about something. So this silly debate about content versus competencies is an erroneous sort of debate because the content is the means, the competencies are the ends, right? So we're going to use knowledge to develop the skills, use knowledge to develop the competencies, so it's, a, it's a sort of a false dichotomy that we either focus on content or we focus on skills because in order to cr- think critically, you have to think about something. So we want our next generation assessments to be authentic, right? Take local issues, take global issues, try to make them as cross-disciplinary as possible, um, using content knowledge to drive that. Three, next generation assessments are for all learners, right? They're not just for the few, not just for the elite. They're not just for a finite group of students. The critical competencies and the adjoining assessments are for all students, all educators, all teams, site-level leaders, parents, etc. All means all. Now, some people will say, "But Tom, we, you know, they have to get mastery over the basics before they, we can push them to a deeper level." Well, maybe, but also maybe having them use the basics in context allows them to become relevant and therefore more easily understood and therefore mastered. Right? Sometimes the basics or the foundations can be too abstract for some learners, 
So sometimes using those basics in context and using them for a relevant reason makes them more understandable and accessible. Okay, number four. Next generation assessments are empowering, right? The default here will be student choice, meaningfulness and personalization. The assessments are aligned to skills and concepts that are important. They provide student ownership through active involvement and they're used to act. The evidence elicited provides opportunities for teachers to give specific feedback to support that learning, right? Used by the teacher teams and the students, as well as for certifying that learning has occurred. So the evidence can be used formatively or summatively, uh, but we can certainly use it to, to, to give feedback, but also to verify what has occurred. But we want students to have opportunities for choice, make it meaningful, make it personalized within the context of the identified standards or curricular competencies that we happen to be working on. Number five is that next generation assessments be multifaceted. Teachers and students will strive to create assessments that are multi-step and cross-curricular, right? Multiple strategies, multiple opportunities, whether they be qualitative or quantitative, that offer much more depth and sophistication than one right answer. So a real clue for next generation assessments is if the assessment has one clear, correct answer, I mean, that can be fine, but that's probably not really what we're talking about here. So in the big picture, think about how do we synthesize multiple skills versus working on skills in isolation? How do we bring it all together into something more substantive, something more meaningful, uh, something with much greater depth? Uh, number six, of course, is that next generation assessments are critical competency focused, right? The assessments anchor around the timeless skills, dispositions, and literacies that learners will need to be successful both now and to be successful as adults or public citizens in a rapidly changing context or circumstances. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the competencies make us adaptable. So if you need uh, an argument or some sort of push for why the competencies are important is that in a rapidly changing world, we need to be adaptable as human beings. What makes me adaptable is being a critical thinker. What makes me adaptable is, is, is me becoming creative or innovative, being able to collaborate, being able to communicate clearly. When I'm a critical thinker, a collaborative thinker, a creative thinker, and a clear communicator, I will be adaptable to the rapidly changing world around me. So next generation assessments are focused on critical competencies, not necessarily the recall of content. And number seven, they are well-rounded. Besides achievement, of course, next generation assessments embed this love of learning, transferability for lifelong employability. They focus on the whole person and the development of a well-rounded human being, right? Ideally, students emerge with an always learning disposition with the persistence and the confidence to accomplish personal goals and certainly, as I mentioned already, with high levels of adaptability. Now, transferability is not always possible, or at least it's not always automatic, because we know, for example, in the research around critical thinking, that my ability to think critically is actually tied to my content proficiency. So it can't just be assumed that as a critical thinker in science, that will automatically transfer to another, another subject area. It's still the goal, and I still think you can strive for that transferability, but we just can't think it, be, it becomes automatic. And that's why a student could be a deep critical thinker in their science class, but then they move into, for example, uh, English, and they're, say, uh, thinking deeply and critically thinking about literature, and they don't have as much content proficiency, and therefore their critical thinking won't be at the same depth of understanding. So just to recap, next generation assessments, they are modern, they are authentic, they are for all learners, they are empowering, they are multifaceted, they focus on critical competencies, and they are well-rounded, okay? Now, can you do all seven of those every time? Maybe not. But what I would submit to you is that that is the lens through which you examine your assessments and you try to incorporate as many of those as possible as you develop your assessments. So we're thinking quality, not quantity. We're thinking about fewer but more deep, sophisticated questions or prompts or, or actions that students can take to demonstrate what they know. We're never going to truly transform education until we transform what we prioritize as important outcomes and, most importantly, we are never going to truly transform education until we transform how we assess those outcomes. We can't desire 21st century outcomes while continuing to assess like it's 1987.
Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner, or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for links for all of those upcoming professional learning events, as well as the new book coming out, Redefining Student Accountability. Links in the show notes for all of that. Next time, my guest will be Rob Dunlop. Rob is the author of the book, Strive for Happiness in Education. So we dig into some interesting concepts around this idea of happiness. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.